welcome to the Empowered Podcast. I'm your host, Robin Shooter, Certified Lifestyle Medicine Practitioner. My aim is to help everyday people understand science, not the science, and to use that understanding to make better choices for their health and well-being. Each episode, I'll be bringing my latest Substack post to you in audio form. For the full visual experience, including graphs, charts, images, and videos, view the accompanying post in my Empowered Substack. And now, let's dive in. Episode 84, Preventing Dementia, Part 2. In Part 1 of this mini-series on preventing the second leading cause of death in Australia and the leading cause of death in women, I summarise some recent research findings on the don'ts. Don't use combined menopausal hormone therapy, don't overdo it on coffee, and don't be sedentary. Now let's talk about the do's. Do number one, do take a comprehensive diet and lifestyle approach to dementia prevention. A study of over 196,000 older adults enrolled in UK Biobank, which is the same biomedical database and research resource that unearthed the connection between excess coffee intake and dementia risk that I mentioned in part one, found that adherence to four healthy lifestyle factors reduced the risk of developing dementia in people at both high and low genetic risk. The study, called Association of Lifestyle and Genetic Risk with Incidence of Dementia, was a retrospective cohort analysis of UK biobank participants of European ancestry who were aged over 60 and free of cognitive impairment at the time of their enrolment, which was between 2006 and 2010, and for whom genetic information was available. The average follow-up period was eight years. Participants were sorted into five groups known as quintiles, from low to high genetic risk for dementia, based on a polygenic risk score that included the APOE4 gene variant, which we discussed in part one in relation to physical inactivity and dementia risk, and several other gene variants known to be associated with the risk of late-onset Alzheimer's disease in people of European ancestry. A healthy lifestyle score was developed based on adherence to just four factors, no current smoking, Regular physical activity, which was defined as 150 minutes or more of moderate activity per week, or 75 or more minutes of vigorous activity per week, or an equivalent combination, or moderate physical activity at least five days a week, or vigorous activity once a week. A healthy diet defined as at least four of the following seven food groups, fruits, three or more servings per day, vegetables, also three or more servings per day, fish, two or more servings per week, processed meats, one or less serving per week, unprocessed red meats, one and a half or less servings per week, whole grains, three or more servings per day, and refined grains, less than one and a half servings per day, and finally moderate alcohol consumption, which was defined as up to one standard drink per day for women and up to two standard drinks per day for men. I consider this a fairly lax definition of healthy lifestyle, which is no doubt why a full 68.1% of participants were assessed as adherent to a favourable lifestyle based on their responses to questionnaires. Only 8.2% fell in the unfavourable lifestyle bracket, while the remaining 23.6% were classified as following an intermediate lifestyle. But even using these pretty half-assed criteria, the differences in dementia risk between those with the lowest versus the highest healthy lifestyle scores were pretty stark. Comparing those at low genetic risk, those with the most unfavorable lifestyle had a one and a half fold higher risk of developing dementia within the follow-up period of the study than those with the most favorable lifestyle. Those at high genetic risk and with the most favourable lifestyle still had almost double the risk of developing dementia as the low genetic risk favourable lifestyle group. 
but those at highest genetic risk who followed the most unfavorable lifestyle almost tripled their chances of developing dementia, with a hazard ratio of 2.83 compared to low-risk healthy living people. Just think how much more you could ratchet down your risk of becoming cognitively impaired in later life if you adopted a really healthy lifestyle, including a nutrient-dense plant slant diet with an emphasis on green leafy vegetables and berries, strength training to increase and then maintain your lean mass, which we'll discuss in do number two coming up next, and also in my previous articles, Strong Body, Healthy Brain, and Crossword Puzzles or Pumping Iron, What's Best for Maintaining Your Marbles, which I've linked to in the post accompanying this podcast episode. Other components of a really healthy lifestyle, maintaining healthy blood pressure throughout your life, that's do number three, coming soon, sleep optimization, active stress management, which is do number four, also coming soon, brain exercise via intellectual challenges and meaningful social interaction, and addressing environmental factors that impair brain health. See the book Memory Makeover by Dr. Wes Youngberg for an in-depth discussion of this topic. Now, the action step for do number one is take an honest inventory of your current diet and lifestyle habits. Keep a food journal for one week, writing down everything you eat and drink. Track your physical activity for a week. How many hours do you spend sitting, standing, doing active tasks such as gardening or housework and exercising? How much sleep do you get each night and do you wake refreshed in the morning? How much do you challenge and stimulate your brain by, for example, learning a new language, playing a musical instrument, playing strategy games such as chess or bridge, learning complex dance routines, writing, and engaging in civilized debates with people who don't share your views, not Twitter flame wars? Do you have a de-stressing or downshifting routine? How much time do you spend outdoors in nature versus indoors in artificial lighting? Your responses to this self-quiz will help you identify the lifestyle domains that require the most attention. And do feel free to reach out to me via my website, empowertotalhealth.com.au, if you need guidance or coaching to shed your bad habits and replace them with healthy lifestyle practices. Do number two, do build and maintain strong muscles all through your life. A study of over 450,000 participants in the UK Biobank study and a further 324,000 participants in two other studies found that people with a genetic predisposition to higher lean mass, that is more muscle, had a lower risk of developing Alzheimer's disease. Those with the highest lean mass in their arms and legs also demonstrated better cognitive performance than their scrawnier brethren. The study authors identified 584 gene variants that, in combination, explain just over 10% of the variance between individuals in appendicular lean mass, that is, muscle mass in the legs and arms, as measured by bioimpedance. None of these gene variants were located within the apogene region, which is associated with vulnerability to Alzheimer's disease. The occurrence of these gene variants, in aggregate, was used as a proxy for lean mass. Each one standard deviation, a standard deviation being a measure of the amount of variance in a set of statistical values. So each one standard deviation increase in genetically proxied appendicular lean mass was associated with a 12% lower risk of Alzheimer's disease. This association between more lean mass and reduced risk of Alzheimer's disease was replicated using a different method of measuring lean muscle mass, which incorporated the trunk and whole body. Genetically proxied lean mass was also associated with better cognitive performance measured by standard intelligence testing. 
The researchers speculated that the link between greater muscle mass and lower risk of Alzheimer's disease might be mediated by the protective effect of lean tissue against insulin resistance and or high blood pressure, both of which are risk factors for dementia, or by myokines, that is peptides or short proteins, that are produced and secreted by skeletal muscles during exercise. Multiple myokines, including brain-derived neurotrophic factor, or BDNF, cathepsin B, and fibroblast growth factor 21, have been found to have neuroprotective effects and to suppress neuroinflammation, which is one of the principal drivers of dementia and other neurodegenerative diseases. The authors acknowledge the limitations of their study and call for further research to confirm their findings to identify whether they also apply to other forms of dementia, to explore the mechanisms by which higher muscle mass protects against Alzheimer's, and perhaps most importantly, to determine whether exercise interventions early in the course of cognitive decline might stave off the development of full-blown Alzheimer's. However, they also express confidence that their findings cannot be explained away by confounding or reverse causality, and that these findings hold the promise for an important modality of preventive care to reduce the burden of Alzheimer's disease on individuals, families and society. A quote from the study. These analyses provide new evidence supporting a cause and effect relation between lean mass and risk of Alzheimer's disease. In this study, we identified genetic support for a protective effect of lean mass on the risk of Alzheimer's disease and on higher cognitive performance. Further investigation is warranted to understand the clinical and public health implications of these findings." End quote. Neither general activities like housework and gardening, nor cardiovascular exercise such as walking, running and aerobics classes are sufficient to build and maintain lean mass, especially as we age. Dedicated strength training using bodyweight exercises like push-ups, chin-ups and pull-ups, free weights including dumbbells, barbells, kettlebells and sandbags, weights machines or resistance bands is an absolute necessity if you wish to stave off sarcopenia, which is the name given to the age-related progressive loss of muscle mass and strength that is a major cause of disability, institutionalization in nursing homes and premature death. This new study adds reduced risk of Alzheimer's disease to the growing list of benefits of, of developing and maintaining a strong body throughout the lifespan. Both males and females should ideally be incorporating at least two dedicated strength training sessions per week into their activity schedule from at least their early 20s to attain the highest peak lean mass that is genetically possible for them and then maintain it throughout their lives. But even for those commencing resistance training late in life, impressive gains in muscle size and strength, mobility, stamina and energy metabolism are possible with sufficient training volume. Those gentle exercise for seniors classes just don't cut it. Oldies need to lift weights that are heavy enough to challenge them and increase the weights progressively as their strength and stamina improve. The action step for do number two Include at least two dedicated strength training sessions per week into your schedule. Consult an exercise physiologist who specializes in strength training for older people if you've never lifted weights before or if you have an injury that limits mobility. Do number three. Do ensure you maintain a healthy blood pressure, not too high, not too low, throughout your life. Most people are aware that having high blood pressure or hypertension is a health hazard, but it's less well known that having blood pressure that is too low or hypotension in later life is also dangerous. 
in a long-term follow-up study of over 4,700 US women, compared to participants who had normal blood pressure in both midlife and late life, both having high blood pressure in midlife and late life, and having high blood pressure in midlife but low blood pressure in late life, increased the risk of being diagnosed with dementia. The study enrolled women who were aged between 45 and 65 in 1987 to 1989. In a series of follow-up visits over the next two and a half decades, the women underwent various tests including blood pressure measurements, a cognitive battery and functional assessments. Hypertension was defined as a systolic blood pressure above 140 millimeters of mercury or a diastolic blood pressure above 90 millimeters of mercury. Hypotension was defined as a systolic blood pressure lower than 90 millimeters of mercury or a diastolic blood pressure lower than 60 millimeters of mercury. After 24 years of follow-up, it was found that women who were hypertensive in both midlife and late life had a 49% higher risk of being diagnosed with dementia than participants who had normal blood pressure in both life phases, whilst those who had hypertension in midlife but developed hypotension in late life had a 62% higher risk. This is not the first study to find a heightened risk of dementia with late-life hypotension. A population-based health study of over 24,000 Norwegians found that, quote, over the age of 60 years, consistent inverse associations were observed between systolic blood pressure and all-cause dementia, mixed Alzheimer and vascular dementia, and Alzheimer disease, but not with vascular dementia when adjusting for age, sex, education, and other relevant covariants, end quote. That quote is from the paper, Association Between Blood Pressure and Alzheimer Disease, measured up to 27 years prior to diagnosis, the Hunt study. Now, you might ask, why does having low blood pressure in late life carry a greater risk of developing dementia than having high blood pressure at this time? Quite simply, because low blood pressure decreases blood flow to the brain when an individual is sitting or standing, and diminished blood flow is believed to play a critical role in the development of dementia and other neurodegenerative diseases. Researchers at Binghamton University in New York have found that diastolic blood pressure is the better predictor of cognitive performance. In a yet-to-be-published study of the relationship between blood pressure and cognitive performance, they found that over 85% of otherwise healthy 50 to 95-year-old subjects had resting diastolic blood pressures below 80 millimeters of mercury, and that three-quarters of those with below normal blood pressure also scored below normal in tests of cognitive function. These researchers also noted that the most common cause of low blood pressure is low cardiac output, that's insufficient blood pumped out by the heart with each stroke, which is due in turn to insufficient blood being returned to the heart from the lower body. Their previous work had demonstrated the critical role played by the soleus muscle, that's the calf muscles in the middle of the lower legs, in maintaining normal blood pressure during sedentary activities. The soleus muscles are deep postural muscles that are most active during activities such as sustained squatting or standing on one's toes. It's interesting to note that squatting is the preferred resting position of hunter-gatherer communities like the Hadza of Tanzania. The Hadza spend about as many hours per day as the average Westerner in sedentary positions, but the time they spend in active rest positions like squatting is associated with cardiometabolic benefits compared to sitting in chairs. 
Finally, as I noted in a previous article, five reasons to think twice before taking blood pressure drugs, overly aggressive treatment with antihypertensive drugs can drive down diastolic blood pressure to dangerously and even fatally low levels. A quote from that previous article. An analysis of 22,576 patients with hypertension and coronary artery disease found that the patients whose diastolic blood pressure was lowered to 60 to 70 millimeters of mercury had almost double the risk of death or non-fatal heart attack or stroke compared to those with a diastolic pressure of 80 to 90 millimeters of mercury, while those whose diastolic blood pressure was pushed down to 60 millimeters of mercury or less had triple the risk, end quote. So here's the action step. Tracking your blood pressure, preferably with a home blood pressure monitor that you use regularly, is a vital element in taking control of your health. If you are over 60, currently on antihypertensive medication, and your diastolic blood pressure is regularly below 80 millimeters of mercury, talk to your prescribing doctor about reducing the dose of medication to prevent diastolic hypotension. And also, work on your hunter-gatherer squat, and I've included a great short little video to teach you how to squat like a hunter-gatherer. Now, if you're hypotensive without medication, you too will benefit from activating your soleus and your other postural muscles by developing your capacity to hold that squat. Toe standing can also be practiced while you're brushing your teeth, washing up, or working at a standing desk. My previous articles, Five Reasons to Think Twice Before Taking Blood Pressure Drugs and High Blood Pressure When Drugs Do More Harm Than Good, discuss the dangers of antihypertensive medication, while my March 2020 Deep Dive webinar, which you can access by activating your free one-month trial of my Empowered Membership Program, presented a comprehensive lifestyle medicine treatment program for hypertension. Do number four. Do put your body into rest and restore mode every day. As we age, the activity of the parasympathetic branch of our autonomic nervous system declines while sympathetic nerve activity increases. Decreased heart rate variability is a primary indicator of reduced parasympathetic activity while circulating noradrenaline levels are a marker of increased sympathetic activity. This sympathetic dominance is associated with known risk factors for Alzheimer's disease, including sleep disorders, diabetes, and heart disease. Furthermore, chronically elevated stress is associated with an increased risk of Alzheimer's disease, and overproduction of noradrenaline accelerates the spread of the signature pathologies of Alzheimer's disease in the brain. In a small study of healthy adults, 54 young and 54 older adults, participants were randomized to use either slow-paced breathing and a biosensor device, the M-Wave Pro, to increase their heart rate variability. Remember, this signifies increased parasympathetic activity. Or to use biofeedback to decrease their heart rate variability, signifying increased sympathetic activity, that is, a more stressed state. Slow-paced breathing combined with biofeedback to increase heart rate variability led to decreased plasma levels of amyloid beta, a biomarker associated with high risk of Alzheimer's disease and cardiovascular death, as well as reduced noradrenergic signaling. While acknowledging that plasma amyloid beta is only a proxy measure of how well the brain is clearing amyloid beta, the study's authors highlighted the fact that theirs is the first behavioral intervention that has been shown to reduce this signature biomarker of Alzheimer's disease. They also pointed to the positive results of a multi-component clinical trial on 25 patients with dementia or mild cognitive impairment. This pilot study used a closely related biofeedback device intended to increase heart rate variability, the heart math in a balance, as its stress management intervention. 
Patients experienced improvements in biochemical markers, standardised assessments of everyday function, neuropsychological test scores and even increased brain volume. It's important to emphasise that the heart rate variability training was just one aspect of this comprehensive approach to treating dementia and its precursor condition, mild cognitive impairment, and hence it's impossible to determine whether and how much it contributed to the positive outcomes attained in this pilot study. Nonetheless, the study offers real hope to patients and their families who are usually presented with an exceptionally grim prognosis. The study also underscores the need for a multifaceted approach to this complex condition, which I wholeheartedly endorse. The action step for this point is to commit to a daily practice of downshifting, de-stressing or unwinding that reduces sympathetic nervous system activity and increases parasympathetic activity. If you want to use the intervention employed in the study that I just discussed, check out the HeartMath website to learn more about this technique and to explore their range of biofeedback devices. And a final note to wrap up this mini-series, I have many more articles on preventing dementia and other pathological conditions in my Aging and Longevity article library, which is on my website, and I've got a link to that article library in the post accompanying this podcast episode. These articles will help you to identify problem areas in your current habits of living and to develop a comprehensive diet and lifestyle program to help you maximize physical and mental function as you move through your autumn years. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend and on your socials and make sure you subscribe to my Empowered Substack so you never miss a post.